Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib. Friends, in times of obvious schisms between human beings and the structures and institutions we've created to help us, uh, a lot of opportunities can be stirred up. And these are opportunities that only the frenetic and urgent intensity of times of schism can show us. We can see in times like that that there have always been many pathways available to us, but that we were stuck in our heads, in our thoughts, um, and that we can move past that and be there for each other and dissolve obstruction. We can even redeem evil and turn it into the willing service of good. And it's with that sense of possibility that I turn to the occult and esotericism for direction. The problem is... <laughs> for a lot of people, what are esoteric and occult development anyway? Are they the same as self-development, self-help, abundance culture, using magic? Or are spiritual development and self-development quite different? And if so, are they therefore pointing us to different worlds, different ways of being? And also, if they're different, where do they touch? To discuss all of this, I asked Duncan Barford and Alan Chapman onto the show for conversation and contemplation. Duncan and Alan are perhaps best known for their chronicle um, of their efforts to achieve enlightenment through magical traditions, The Baptist Head, Magic as a Path to Enlightenment, which is being re-released next year after being out of print for years. They now co-host an excellent podcast on spirituality, magic, enlightenment, the paranormal, all that, called Warp FM. Alan is also the caretaker of the spiritual path of Ordo Magia, and Duncan is a counselor and continues to write about spirituality, magic, and the paranormal. Let me first, though, tell you why I thought to invite them on, aside from just <laughs> appreciating who they are. Because spirituality is beyond desire, when we constrain it to desire, and that includes the spiritual paths that include the desire to get rid of desire, we limit the scope of the spiritual landscape, the spiritual world, and spiritual truth, which means we will develop differently. On an episode of Warp FM, their podcast, they talked about a magical working from money that they were involved with, uh, particularly Duncan. And, um, you know, lots of people use magic to get money, whether it's an elaborate ritual dealing with supernatural beings, or it's just putting post-it notes on the mirror that say, I will make money today or whatever. And so many people use it, in fact, that the next episode of the show is all about the mysteries of money, economy, and number, <laughs> so we can look into it more deeply. Without getting into too much detail about they're working. You can listen to that discussion on Warp FM. One of the effects of the ritual was that Duncan afterwards was in a store and someone had dropped a wad of cash. And he struggled with whether or not to pick it up and just take it. I was listening to that episode of their podcast in a car on a way to a town in Western Ireland. I stopped. I stopped the podcast, obviously, and I stopped uh, my car, and I went into a store to get a few things, and someone had left a wad of cash at the counter. <laughs> it was just sitting there, unnoticed, waiting for me, it seemed. Like Duncan, I handed the cash back. But <laughs> there was a synchronicity, 
and an understanding uh, that happened in that moment that drew me to ask the guys on. But also, it was this moment of showing me uh, a stark difference between ethics and morals, between self-development and spiritual development. See, because self-development, manifestation, culture, etc., might tell you that that money is yours. Money is everywhere. It's abundant. You know, it's going to fall from the sky for you. Spiritual development might tell you something else entirely. And I noticed in that moment also, it was something that they went on to talk about in the show, but I noticed in that moment how tricky it could be to keep on the path of spiritual development, how furtive adversarial forces obfuscating forces are when they want to sneak onto our paths and disrupt them to slip in and reroute our being i thought about how spiritual development is not about getting things it's not about directing the will onto the world but something else so what is that and can it help in our moment well yes but can how i'm so excited to share this episode with you i hope it can orient you at least as you listen to peace and equanimity. It's a really lovely conversation. Duncan has been on the show before on episode 219 to talk about the misuses and uses of magic, which is something we touch on again this episode. But there's a whole backlog of episodes on magic and spirituality with people like Ari Torsen and Lisa Romero and... J.F. Martell and Phil Ford, who host Weird Studies, and Duncan Trussell, and so on and so forth. All those episodes, as always, are free for everybody. There's this, this big archive of conversations about big ideas. Because they're free, um, I ask that people who listen to the show consider, and also just do, <laughs> support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. It's a way to keep the show ad-free. I mean, I'm going to keep the show ad-free whether or not you go there, so that's not really the motivation to do it. But just to say, I like to keep it ad-free. I've made that decision because I don't care about ads. I don't want them. I want to have a connection with you, the listener. So if you feel that connection in this episode, if you feel it's lit something up in your thinking or maybe even just frustrated you or compelled you to have a conversation of your own or to read Duncan and Alan's stuff or listen to their podcast, please do contribute to the show, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. The other ways you can support this show, um, I know not everybody can feel or not everybody feels they can support the show financially. You can also um, buy my novel, Hawk Mountain, and on, it's also available on audiobook. You can also subscribe to the show. You can tell people about it. You can give it a five-star rating and a warm review on Apple Podcasts if you feel that way about it. <laughs> Everything I try to do to support my work on the show, I try to do it as honestly and with as much integrity as possible. That's why I like Patreon, because it's not about paying people for their labor which I don't agree with because I'm not down with the wage-labor relationship that exists in the world today, but it's about showing appreciation for who someone is and what they're doing in the world. So patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Duncan Barford and Alan Chapman. <laughs> Thank you.
everybody. It's against everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Duncan Barford and Alan Chapman. Hi, Connor. <laughs> Hello, Connor. <laughs> okay. Um, so I wanted to start with <laughs> um, one of the big problems um, with spiritual practice and the way that people talk about bringing uh, their spiritual life to the world, which is a struggle with um, a struggle with and directly against adversarial forces, forces of darkness, forces of unknowing in yourself. I do think that there's something to wrestling with all of this, but there's this idea of directly going at it which has a kind of political valence, which we can talk about maybe a little later. But, um, you know, something that you point out, Alan, and I mean, you've talked about also, Duncan, is just when we go directly at it, we're becoming uh, knocked off of the connection to our own destiny in a way. In other words, it becomes a distraction, which actually can deepen and amplify these uh, obfuscating presences. And so I just want to talk about that first, because uh, I think the way that spirituality is finding some foothold and and uh, occultism, esotericism, magic is finding some foothold now in popular culture is either, yeah, is, is, is for some sort of political use or for self-help and self-development, which is not the same as spiritual development. So I know that's a lot to begin with, but I would just like to uh, start there. Yes, a principal orientation in uh, in my spiritual practice is this is this principle of uh, growing what you care about, as opposed to uh, fighting with shadows or fighting with a problem. And often it's the case that you might think to get what it is that you care about, you need to deal with the problem that's preventing what you care about. Uh, manifesting or being the case or something that you can participate in. Does that make sense so far? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we'll use the obvious spiritual example of awakening, right? So the idea is if you want spiritual awakening, if you want to realize non-duality, or however you want to describe that um, very real and available uh, experience that's the birthright of every human being and is a possibility for anyone listening to this, <laughs> Yes, however you want to define it. Uh, often hand in hand with that is this idea that you need to get rid of delusion or you need, or you need to uh, penetrate the veil or something of this nature. And so people spend their time trying to get rid of delusion or in trying to correct uh, false beliefs that they might, might have or something of that nature. In terms of uh, uh, spiritual conflict, I mean, that would translate into terms such as you need to deal with the problem of evil uh, to bring about a good world something like that. Mm -hmm. The problem is that's a case of mistaken identity. So it looks like if you get rid of delusion, that's the same thing as waking up, but they're actually opposites. If you care about delusion, then spend your time wrestling with delusion, if that's what you want to do. But if you care about waking up, or if you care about uh, realizing a good world, however you want to define that, uh, then you should care about that. And that's the thing that you should cultivate. So, you know, the starting position isn't a binary where the thing that you care about is either there or it isn't. Rather, uh, it makes more sense, at least in my experience, to take uh, 
an approach that's best described as um, uh, an agricultural analogy. It's the idea that what you care about is something that is present, but it's like a seed. So you don't have to go looking for it or trying to make it appear or something like that. It's already the case. And then spiritual practice is akin to tending the growth of that seed. So that eventually it leads to a fruit in your life or a fruit in the world, which is a very real measurable change that occurs that don't just, doesn't just affect you, but everyone else. But the process is one that we might describe as turning inward as opposed to outward or turning towards yourself as opposed to turning towards others to try and make them other than they are, something like that. So uh, just as a general orientation, that would be my first step forward is there's something that's already present that you care about. Your practice is to cultivate that. And you're growing what you care about. You're not wrestling with what you think is the problem that prevents you from having what you care about, which is, in fact, a case of mistaken identity. Does that make mm. sense? Mm. Yeah. And I and think, I think you know, when you were talking there about um, taking an interest in delusion, mm. you know, I mean, that sounds to me almost pretty much like a definition of, you know, what gets called the dark night of the soul. Because I know this is one that, um, you know, I've fallen into in the past. Um, and you also meet a lot of people who are following a spiritual path who, you know, what, what Daniel Ingram calls chronic dark night yogis, you know, and that when you were saying that, Alan, you know, that's what, that's what spoke to me, you know, I mean, is that your understanding of what you're saying there? You know, that, um, that preoccupation with delusion is, is a kind of dark night, you know, and maybe, what you're saying there is that that's not necessarily inevitable. I'd go further than that. And I would say there's a flip side to the dark night stuff. When you're in the dark night, it's as if the, um, the delusion is presenting itself uh, clearly, mm. but you might even say superficially, like your immediate experience, as you know, is, uh, is one of, um, you know, agitation, disgust, mm. sadness, depression, anger. <laughs> and it's as if the impressions, you know, by their strengths, uh, or their intensities, that they're trying to convince you that they're the most important thing that needs dealing with. You should spend your time dealing with those things, right? So, so you might think, if I can get rid of these things, then I'll then I'll move on. Um, but there's a flip side to that, and it's before you get to the dark night. I would even say the positive states that you experience, that are superficial, that present themselves. Uh, you know what we might define as spiritual: uh, bliss, peace, clarity. Uh, you know, the, the fireworks of spirituality, visions, encounters with entities, whatever, anything that you might uh, describe as success in, in the endeavor uh, is just the flip side to that. It's more impressions that are trying to convince you that they're more important than anything else. Mm. Um, so, so then I would say the orientation in terms of growing what you care about is recognizing that there's something that runs through both of those. Right. Mm. So, so uh if you if you cling to the good stuff, what you think is the good stuff, after a while it gets stale, doesn't it? Mm. Right, and then and then you start to um, doubt the veracity of the experience that you've had, or its value in terms of the the quest that you're on or the seeking that you're doing. Right, but there's something that travels that travels through it. Now you could spend your time holding on to that stuff and wrestling with it, or you can recognize that there's something that's going beyond it, and the fact that it that it's fading away isn't regression; it's actually progress. And then when things get even worse, that's more progress. But it's the same thread. Whether it's whether it, you you whether you, your preferences determine whether it's good or whether it's bad is irrelevant. There's something else that's traveling all the way through it. And it's once you go beyond those opposites, that's when you get, you know, in, in some of the more technical traditions, the description of the fruit of the practice, which is something that's beyond both of those 
opposites. But the orientation is always the thing that you care about is over an horizon that you can't see over. And that includes the, you know, the most profound edge of your spiritual practice. Your best ideas, you know, your most groundbreaking conclusions that you've come to, right? It's always over that horizon. So what I like to say is, um, you know, you can you can have your awakenings and you can have your delusions or you can have what I might describe as the divine self or the beloved or the thing that I'm looking for. Uh, but you can't have both. And the interesting thing, though, is if if you're oriented towards your beloved, however you want to describe that, which is always over that horizon, right? And it's a call, isn't it, that's organic, that calls you towards it. The interesting thing is you get given all of that delusion and all of that awakening for free, but you don't care about it because your eyes are on one thing. Your eyes are on something else. Yeah, I <clears throat> I, I tend to think of these things in terms of destiny. Um, but let me back up before I kind of get to that point and just say, you know, I think part of the struggle with the darkness and the dark forces, delusion within ourselves, all those sorts of things is that we really want our development to somehow connect with world development. I mean, this is a constant conundrum for people. Um, how do I, you know, do, do I improve the world by improving myself? Do, you know, I have to make the material conditions of the world fit before I can actually do the work on myself, all that kind of stuff. So I think that that disconnection is part of why people wrestle with this question. And I do think that, you know, the way I, the way I try to think about it is that my life isn't perfect, but my destiny is perfect. And if I can um, <clears throat> use my freedom, uh, the actual freedom I have as, you know, just being incarnated, individuated, um, <laughs> whatever I am, <laughs> um, to give up my freedom, to submit my freedom to my destiny, um, and to give up, literally up to God, um, then I am at least <laughs> the times I can do that because it is, uh, you know, submersion, immersion, surfacing kind of experience mostly for me still, um, and probably will be until I'm dead, uh, that I... Um, then I get into that current of destiny. I stand inside. I mean, you, you've, I think, talked about it, Alan, as the, the golden thread that runs through the darkness. But I, rather than me thinking of it as something that maybe I would hold on or see, it's actually what I stand in, you know, um, that I move into this. I think maybe we might be articulating different things there, but still I use your uh, words to <laughs> make my own way through this conversation. So I stand like in. A golden thread. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I stand in, you know, I stand in my destiny and then the the picture is actually given to me, but it's not it's not the same kind of picture. It's not the varying flipbook picture, but actually something else is happening. It's a picture that's made out of the wisdom of my life. Um so I I, I do think there's this um <laughs> This way in which people are, you know, engaging with the world that is like, how do I solve all these world problems? How do I solve my personal problems, my life problems? How do I develop? How do I connect to spirit? All that kind of stuff. In a lot of ways, you know, life before you could submit to destiny or give up to destiny or surrender to it is just the dark night of the soul anyway, all of it. Um, and, and to 
get to that really dark night of the soul-y soul part is <laughs> to deepen the journey into living um, until you are absolutely at that place where you feel completely disconnected from your destiny and God. And then, of course, as often happens, it becomes revealed to you after you go past that. But the the dark night of the soul is a condition just of being alive as you're, you know, um, traveling between love, which is birth, and truth, which is death, which are the two irrefutable points of our destiny and the wisdom that's between them. The reason why we have a spiritual practice is because um, at best, we will catch ourselves wrestling with the darkness, uh, trying to hold on to the light. Um, we'll catch ourselves doing that. And we need an orientation which allows us to say yes to that destiny that you were talking about, as opposed to uh, uh, an idea, a complementary idea that I that I like to use that goes along with the idea of destiny, which is fate. Mm -hmm. So 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 fate would be your fate would be where that darkness leads to, or even where the holding on to the what we might describe, maybe perhaps ungenerously, but as your own false light, you know, where where they might lead to. You need to escape your fate and realize your destiny, right? Because um, mm. uh, we can think of those two as the same thing, and that's you know that's fine. But technically speaking, that's sometimes how I like to think about it. So um, yes, that's that's why we would have a practice, and um, uh, following that thread is being oriented towards uh, that destiny. If I'm understanding how you were expressing it, Connor, I suppose the thing that's troubling me a little bit is. All of this that we're talking about is incredibly hard won, you know, and it can sound as if it isn't. And, you know, I imagine that all of what the two of you have talked about has come to you, you know, from doing the opposite a lot of the time, you know, from making so many mistakes. And um, I always have a bit of a difficulty with this. I remember once I went to uh, a, a Advaita meeting. You know, there was this uh, young guy who'd just become a teacher. He was teaching Advaita and I went along to, to one of these meetings and, you know, it followed the same sort of pattern that these meetings tend to, where the the teacher sits at the front and everybody asks questions, you know, and they, they just give you nothing. They give you nothing back. <laughs> You know, they're just uh, directing your attention to, um, you know, awakening. It's already here. You know, you don't need to do anything. It's already done, that sort of thing. But this guy talked about the path that he'd followed, you know, and he'd done everything. You know, he'd, he'd gone to see loads of gurus. He'd, he'd tried this meditation, that meditation, this path, that path, you know, and um, eventually he exhausted it all. And then he had his awakening experience and he could see how how none of that had caused the awakening to happen. But that wasn't what he was teaching, you know, and I've always got a had a had a bit of a problem with this because, you know, why wasn't he teaching what he'd done? I mean, he, he said that when he had that awakening experience, he could see how none of that seeking was what had produced that. But yet that's the path it followed and that's where it ended up so i think i think there is this this problem with um you know getting it wrong is part of the process um 
you know, and I wondered, you know, I wondered what you what you thought about that, Alan, because you know what you teach now is is very very different from what you used to. Yeah, I I would say continuing continually describing how you are wrong in new and exciting ways <laughs> is basically what following the thread means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, o- over the years, increasingly, uh, and it's a repeated lesson. I've come to the conclusion that I barely know how to put my, you know, foot in one foot in front of the other. Uh, mm. Like, like, uh, um, I don't know what's best for me. <laughs> uh, all my plans are really stupid. Um, you know, uh, what can I say? All of my, you know, all of my best attempts, my like, uh, you know, cutting edge thoughts. Um, I, I tried to bring those to bear on uh, helping people wake up a few years ago with a particular project. Uh, I had a research program, um, an interactive gamified website with 130 videos on it, something like this. Uh, <laughs> I did a phenomenal amount of work. I gave myself migraines. Um, but it's like what you were just talking about in terms of individual practice. I had to exhaust my best uh unconscious but gradually becoming conscious um attempts at trying to fulfill something that i would say in 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 terms of what connor just said something that was part of my destiny it was like i had to exhaust that before i could then make room for something that was beyond all those best attempts was was more profoundly put together than i could possibly conceive of as a human being um I mean, even, even to this day now, even even last year, I thought I knew where things were going, and it's just that repeated lesson. Like, like I have I have no idea. Mm. Um, even 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 now, things are happening, and I can't I can I I don't understand. It's the same thread, but now it's leading me in a completely different direction to where I was going last year. Um, last year involved me creating a magical order, uh, as well as other things that are well documented in Minor Duncan's award-winning occult podcast warp <laughs> fm um <laughs> i used to say that about the baptist head website award-winning <laughs> i remember i i um i wrote an article with 40 and times and it, it wanted a little bio and i put i'm i'm one half of the team that runs this award-winning occult website the baptist head and of course they scrubbed that bit out the award-winning <laughs> By the by, the way, we've never won any awards. Have we? <laughs> of course not. Of course not. No. Uh, yes. Now, so so in, in what I've come to realize is that the 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 core principle at the heart of uh, spiritual life is that very unpopular and unfashionable term, faith. Mm. Yeah, it gives people yeah. the heebie-jeebies when you say faith but what i mean by faith is trust in uh the impossible in the miraculous in something that's beyond yourself uh, that thing that's over the horizon that's calling you the voice that you can listen to that we might describe as following a golden thread that's contrary to the voices that you hear from all the appearances and impressions that you receive including from your family and your culture right it's this idea that there's there's this isn't the way that things should be something like that or this isn't, um, uh, I know that there's something better than this, or the way that I'm behaving is vastly inappropriate. 
uh, in terms of the circumstances that I'm, you know, acting out this behavior in, uh, that kind of a thing. So you end yeah. up following that thread and pitch black that the best you can do is just light the candle, you know, that little flame that's your face. That's all you have is that's the first move you can make. And sometimes the only move you can make. But that's uh, and that's what's essential is making that decision. And in terms of what I spoke about earlier, that's like choosing your destiny over your fate. Because if you yeah. listen to appearances, if if you go with the seduction of um, existence, if you can put it that way, that leads in one direction, uh, and it's and it's a direction that has an end, you know, which is the which is a, a an image of the annihilation of the self, which is what death is. Mm. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying. Faith is not believing in weird stuff. It's just living according to what actually matters. And yeah, why, why wouldn't you be doing that? <laughs> yeah, I sometimes use this phrase uh, "silent knowing." Mm. It means that you you're looking for something, which which must mean that you know what it is. Otherwise, how could you be looking for it? But you have, but you can't put it into words. And it's the thing that drives your entire spiritual engagement throughout your entire life. Sometimes uh, you become conscious of it when, when you're a child, which means it's got nothing to do with the terms that you learn along the way or the practices or the traditions or the teachers or the books or the way that you dress or your, you know, your spiritual diet or, or whatever. All those things come after the fact. And they're a way for you to put into words what that process is or what following that thread is or having faith in that silent knowing is uh and of course it changes your life because these are real things i'm talking about you know you change the way that you behave in the world um i don't know am i going off into am i going am i going off on a tangent no no i mean i <clears throat> i've thought so many things when both of you guys were talking i'm thinking about this moment i i think it's in the could it's either in the Iliad or the odyssey whereas zeus says this thing um you have the quote, what a lamentable thing it is that men should blame the gods and regard us as the source of their troubles, when it is their own wickedness that brings them suffering worse than any which destiny allots them. And so, <clears throat> for me, it's like, <laughs> how, do I, how do I say this? Um, okay, yeah, no one's going to like this but that's okay um i mean you guys might but no one else listening will <laughs> um which is you know the very hard esoteric lesson to learn which is completely at odds with the way we talk about things uh in an everyday sense um or popular sense which is that everything that's bad that comes to me is my own and uh everything that's good that comes to me comes through god which is the exact opposite of what people usually say, which is that the bad things are a creation of the conditions of the social order and the good things happen because of our own striving or our work to sort of overcome them. But <clears throat> if you work with that principle a bit, you begin to see that, well, I've done these bad things or these mistakes as you've, you know, maybe named them, Duncan, if we're talking about the same thing, that I've, I've made these errors, which have brought some misery. Um, and, uh, and because of that, um, and, and there can be even, well, we won't talk about karmic errors or, you know, the difference between personal karma, world karma, group karma, all that kind of stuff. But, uh, 
these things that are mistakes that are difficult for me, I've brought them in because um, creating sets of them, creating work with them, ultimately does open up or crack open something for God to come in and you know and offer grace. So it's not um, it's not like uh, God works in mysterious ways and brought you suffering. It's um, you know God is offering the presence and and the grace, and you're going to often, as you point out, get there through um, bringing together different forms of mistake, suffering, delusion, whatever, and that will open it up for you. But again. <laughs> it's important for me to say I don't accept that everything we do is perfect that my mm. destiny again is perfect but that doesn't mean that just because my destiny is perfect that all of my actions and my wrestling with these gods that exist below in terms of destiny uh, is perfect um, but more that there is a difference between <laughs> Uh, acting with the idea of engaging with the forces of love and truth, then there is these other kinds of wrestling. I realize that that's a really roundabout way of <laughs> talking about things, but I just, I just think, you know, um, you have brought this up before when we talked Duncan about the, well, but I had to go through all this stuff to, you know, understand that not to do it. And I also want to be very careful not to warn others off of going through the very experience that led me here. And I do think that that's a really important point um, to bring because I definitely have my ideas of what spiritual paths are bad and which ones are good and which ones, you know, are useful or not useful. But um, ultimately that does lie with the, with the individual I mean, certainly if someone looked at my life, they would say that I had made a lot of very dark, unilluminated decisions. And yet those unilluminated, you know, corridors where I've tried to leave some torches in the sconces, you know, for others to be able to sort of walk through, they led me d definitely here. I, I don't know if I could have done it any other way. That's not for me to know until I die, I suppose. And then maybe I can look at it and, you know, try again. I don't know. <laughs> mm. Is is there a dynamic here that might be, um, you know, at work in all of this? That's it's kind of curiously satanic. Um, <laughs> when you were, <laughs> well, when you when you were talking earlier, Connie, you know, what was coming to my mind was um, I did an episode of my podcast recently where I was looking at the tower in the tarot and um, looking at the the Bible story of uh, the Tower of Babel beneath that. And this idea that, um, you know, building the Tower of Babel, you know, this this construction that flies in the face of God, nevertheless works out as being a way to get God's attention. You know, the, <laughs> because you've built this monstrosity, you know, the divine knocks it down. You know, you, you get interaction with the divine. Um, you know, this idea of um, making mistakes in order for them to be corrected and to to come to realisation through that, you know, is there a curiously 
kind of satanic dynamic here, which is, you know, doing something intentionally in a way along those lines, you know, in order to have uh, the divine set us straight again. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that I, I, I think using the term satanic is interesting because if I'm going to define evil mm. in any way that I think is actually naming what it is rather than just naming a wound or a compulsion, it is someone who with spiritual knowledge is intending uh, to work with those forces. I don't, uh, so there has to be freedom in the choice of engagement there. Sometimes the freedom can be a little hard to see where that moment of freedom or choice was or decision was. Um, yeah. But I don't think it's just like someone was hurt, so they hurt somebody else. Or, And I also don't just think evil is, you know, evil and good are just merely, you know, uh, modernist terms that don't really have value. Um, so I would say... For me, if I look back, it, you know, the wrenches I threw in the gears of my life to overcome, I don't necessarily view those as evil. I wasn't really throwing the, as weird as it sounds, I was more like dropping the wrench in the gears and not really thinking, oh, um, I'm going to need to find, I'm, <laughs> sorry, let me put it this way. I would. I don't view that as evil or satanic in the sense of, um, if you do it to find God and you know you're doing it to find God, then you're already kind of removed from that field of working with those forces. You've mm. made the arrangement with your own being to overcome those forces, which I think is something different. Now, there's a lot of danger <laughs> on that path. And I think, you know, as Alan, you know, written about like uh, just uh, what is it? falling in love with a greater delusion along the way, especially if you take that path. I think that that danger can really come in. But I don't think that the agreement to overcome to find God is actually employing, you know, these satanic forces. And you might mean something different by satanic than I do. Um, I'm really talking about Asuric forces. But again, we have maybe different language <laughs> lexicon describing these things. But um, so I, so I don't, you know, so I'm not totally sure that we're seeing eye to eye with the language, but I would yeah, just yeah. respond in that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I suppose what I'm meaning by it is, is a sense of something rebellious, you know, something that is intentionally um, doing something, uh, you know, untoward in, yeah, well, in, in order to provoke some sort of response. Yeah, let me just give a quick example, like a more concrete example. You know, mm. um, I was pretty suicidal for much of my life, um, much of my adult life until, I don't know, my mid-30s or whatever. I'm 46 now. Um, and part of what I held with that suicide pact that I made with myself was the idea that actually suicide represented a condition of freedom which helped me to live. It was like, well, I can always take myself out. So, any situation that came up, if I move close to that suicide idea, um, it in some ways protected me. It was extremely painful and brought tons of suffering um, having that little companion with me through life. Um, but it was also not 
it was also extremely dangerous <laughs> and it, extre- it brought in all kinds of misdirection. And also there were times when I would enter into the absolute flurry of an intensity of that suicidal um, imagining that other things started to come in. Other things started to come in that um, really vibed with this idea of, well, you could just destroy it. You could just burn it down. You could get rid of the body. You could, you know, all those kinds of little Yagos whispering into my ear. And there was fraught with danger. Again, I mean, I came out <laughs> on the other side of decades of that feeling. Um, but it was very dangerous and fraught. And I don't know that everybody. Well, definitely everybody doesn't get to the other side of it. And I, my suicidal stuff only lifted by an encounter with the dead. It, no medication helped, no treatment helped. There was uh, a connection to somebody who had died and then it just lifted. So, I, I mean, I don't know that. So, yeah. So, I would just sort of give that as an example of the way that in which it can offer something real, but also be extremely dangerous and also bring in falsehoods along the way. Well, I would say, you know, that's um, it's 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 a really powerful example. And when you wonder about how dangerous that was, and you know how you came through that, Connor, and actually found those thoughts and going to that place, you know, useful, helpful in the long run. I wonder about. I mean, this is this is something I've come across quite often with with people, you know, in in the throes of serious suicidal feelings. That there is a a relief in in being being able to have that thought, and there's a lot of relief as well when people talk about it and have it taken seriously by somebody else, you know. And I think then um, the the suicidal intention can can become really really real and present and um often you know like you were describing uh, that you experienced for yourself you know that can help people people move on you know something something else can start to happen after that but you know i wonder whether whether it's the people who who don't make it through who who maybe don't go through that process you know where those thoughts are so clear and and so present which thoughts do you mean dunk the the suicidal thoughts i mean um you know when when i've come across um you know people in in my own experience personal experience who've ended the, their lives you know there's often been no sign no indication no discussion nothing whatsoever you know and it's yeah. it's often been a complete shock a complete surprise even to the people who were closest to them could that be a question of whether they shared those thoughts Mm, yeah. And I wonder whether there's something in the act of sharing, you know, that that can enable that that, that sort of process that, that you went through, Connor. Well, the most um, striking thing about Connor's story is, for me, is uh, the, the, the seeming presentation of two different avenues to go down in that circumstance. Mm. So, uh I mean, articulating suicidal thoughts to others is already indicating a certain direction the person wants to move in, mm. which perhaps to not have those thoughts or to not be that that way, they find it troubling. 
you know, the, the, or they're asking for help, at least as a gesture, something like that. Yeah. So that might already be indicative of wanting to move in a certain direction, but that that notion of little voices popping up, uh, persuading you perhaps to move in another direction, to act on that impulse, uh, versus not acting on those things and moving in a direction where, um, and again, I don't have the details on this, Connor, so based on what you said, some something to do with an encounter with someone who was already dead or something like that? Was it was it a relative or something like that? Yeah, so my... <clears throat> I've talked about this before, so it was my oh. mentor. Oh, this uh, She was like my second mom. My mom died when I was 23. This woman, sort of main mentor, she's a big scientist. And weirdly, after she died, she didn't really have a lot of directly sort of spiritual people in her life. But uh, she started appearing in my meditative space and practice, um, partially because I was starting to do some engagement with the dead at that time. But I had done some of that before and nothing like this had ever happened. And she gave some indications and it just all went away. Yeah. Yeah. So I find that interesting. Those two, um, out of that darkness, there's two, two paths that you mm. could travel into it. And there, there, are, there are forces that would persuade you to do that. Mm. Can't make you do it, but might be persuasive to lean into it uh, versus perhaps traveling through it or making a different choice, looking towards something else. Yeah. And it really relates back. I'm glad you're putting those two together because it's just making me see it relates back to some of the things that you were saying before, Alan, where, you know, <clears throat> and I think it's something that we should talk about more broadly, maybe, which is I wasn't doing the meditative act of trying to connect with her after she died to alleviate any suicidal depression. But the healing proximity to the dead um, is what eventually lifted it. I mean, just almost totally, which was, I mean, it was like, I literally saw the world with different colors. I mean, everything was different after that. And, but it wasn't for that. And so there's a way and there's a lesson there, whereas the other kind of little noises and little and big (laughs) spirits that were coming in that were trying to say, use the suicidal impulse, maybe not just to kill yourself, but use it to do other horrible shit, you know, like that they were directly functional, right? They were um, trying to get me to enact my will on the world and their will on me. Whereas with her, I was actually just trying to offer her something in the passage into dying because I knew there weren't probably a lot of spiritual people around her trying, you know, praying for her or or any of that kind of stuff. So there is a way in which um, function, I think, do I want to say always, maybe always interferes with engagement with the spiritual world, like a direct function out of the will, the want, you know? Um, And so maybe that's something we can talk about more broadly too. Yeah. In terms of my orientation, um, I think I would use the term practical if I'm putting this one-to-one where um, whenever you're dealing with the absence of something or dealing with the problem, uh, you employ strategies to deal with it. And that's being Mm -hmm. practical. And um, whilst in that domain, every the only thing that you can do is practical. 
And, it, and usually it's either being passive, you endure a problem and hope it goes away, uh, or you do, or you try and do something about it. But both side, sides of those, um, uh, both those strategies, yeah, they're, they're two sides of the same thing, and that's the damned drama that you find yourself in. And I use the word damned to mean there is literally no way out of it in terms of the drama, and you can't see outside of it. So you flip-flop between these two strategies, but you can't find a way out, and it's damned. It's only when you, when you, when you, we could say open ourselves up to, or rather say yes to something else that allows a possibility to come into that space that isn't part of the drama. It's something from outside. It's something over that horizon, right? And that's, um, we might call that wisdom. Sometimes uh, wisdom's depicted as the goddess of death, right? The goddess of the underworld. Uh, but you move through that drama and and realize the thing that you were looking for in that drama as being something uh, that was never absent in the first place put it that way um and that would be the fruit or the point of the spiritual practice right but but it requires that orientation of, for the very first time uh deciding not to do something about the problem <laughs> and to be an open to something else yeah you, you not being the origin of the solution to it Right. So it's like for the very first time, you're going to be hands off on this problem that you find yourself already dealing with. You're already wrestling with it. Uh, well, at least that's how it would make sense, sense of the, what it is that you're describing there, Connor. Um, I do have this idea of incarnation. Right, The way the way I describe incarnation, one way is that um, the reason we come here in the first place is to encounter, If and if I could talk in this kind of... Uh, a uh, general or crass kind of language, right? We we come here to find things that that, uh, that are upside down, and we encounter them uh, precisely to turn the right way up. And um, one way of thinking about it in terms of what you described, Con, to use that as the example, uh, your preoccupation was with suicide, uh, death, the end of your life. It has a very particular flavour to it, doesn't it? And you found yourself in that drama, and then there was a way through it. And you even said, once you've made your way through it, and it was through contact with the dead, right? Um, once you'd found your way through it, uh, even colours were different. Life's different. It's like the it's like the opposite of what life appeared to you in the, in the drama itself. And that would be that would be the fruit. Or sometimes the way I like to think about it is, we bring that quality here when we incarnate, but we have to smuggle it in because because this world won't let that take root. And, and doesn't want it to be here but by the time you've gone through that drama and then it appears it's too late and there's nothing that can be done about it <laughs> um but i mean just to be clear though uh you know it's uh my conception of creation the totality of things is a mixture of of what we might call just this world in and of itself this world of appearance which is pitch black right which which moves in the direction of forgetfulness of death uh, and, and so on. Um, and then this other world, this world of the dead, which sometimes is called eternity or being. And it's, and it's the mixture of these two together um, that makes creation possible. And we're the gardeners. Like, we've come here to precisely to do that. So uh, this is a kind of a throwback to the comment you would, you know, when you were talking about uh, the nature of evil and its relationship to God. And then, um, you know, what things people ascribe to God as the cause of. 
in terms of being good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, if one has accepted the mission, if we can put it that way, to come here to cultivate fruits that wouldn't be possible otherwise just in this other world, right? This outside of this one, something like that. Um, then you can see that it's not about uh, being compelled to suffer. One has agreed to travel through that suffering to recover something and make something possible that wouldn't be possible otherwise. Mm-hmm. I hope that's not too much of a tangent or I'm not introducing too many too many ideas. Uh, I just found it striking that that's the pattern I can see in what you just described. Go for it, Connor. Alan, I've read your description of, or the, I've read the description in the Magia about, you know, how we live, <laughs> to quote a musician I really love, Daniel Higgs, that we're living in the kingdom of the dead, or living in the kingdom of death, you know. Um, I I love that, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> um, there's so much there's so much to that that's very important if we think about for instance uh our the idea of a dying planet um the moment you begin to understand that um what we are is beyond the planet and beyond nature and that death is you know this involving process with us something else opens up entirely um and it and I don't want to say it, <laughs> I'm not being nihilistic about that. I'm not just saying, so just trash the place or whatever. Again, I think something different and special happens when we decide in out of freedom uh, of thought, of purity in thinking and uh, or in feeling and a purposefulness in our actions, we engage with the processes of love and compassion and and wisdom and truth, like something else can happen. And so it's not just about letting it all go and letting it all fall apart. But I do think we get a different conception then. And I, I think that's really beautiful. And we can also see, and, and so even the biggest, most sort of unsurmountable kinds of problems, once the the bigger spiritual picture of these constitutive forces of that realm of the dead <laughs> or the <laughs> actually just to sort of turn it back to the way we usually talk about it, the realm of the dead, not our realm of the living, <laughs> the realm of the dead bring in, um, we, we can have this different conception. And we can even begin to understand our sort of reciprocity with the spiritual world. So for instance, if I think about, you know, Christ being born and the angels crying before he was born because he was leaving them, <laughs> um, that the, then I can start to get a clear picture of what's happening, the way that love um, breathes in and out of our own experience and the way that uh, sorrow and pain and tragedy can sort of breathe in and out of our own experience as well. So I I just, I mean, that's what I would have to say about what you're talking about. There's so much more to kind of bring in with that picture, but um, ultimately it points me just to say like we, and I think you guys do this and it's something I find very special in what you do. It, well, at least lately, maybe not before, but these days it seems <laughs> is really trying to create what is a, a non-materialistic picture of, of, you know, um, of being. 
and it doesn't mean that material is that has matter has no presence in our lives, or that there's no uh, real illusory physical world or something like that. But that um, we can't just stop at death. We can't keep trying to make things happen here in our own lives as the be all end all of things. But we do have to connect to these constitutive forces, to the dead, to you know, uh, our experience of being, which is not just material. Uh, that, if you want to talk about bringing in too many tangents, Alan, uh, I think I just brought <laughs> so many, but <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's, uh, I mean, this picks up a couple of threads that we've talked about, but um, <laughs> there is also this conception of being um, serious about being practical. Mm. Right. So I'll use the example of magic because, because in some senses, it's the archetypal way of understanding everything. You know, you can have the question, um, if you survey the spiritual landscape, so to speak, or spiritual communities or magical communities or whatever, right, what we call communities, uh, or culture, something like that, these subcultures, um, you can you can look at, um, uh, in terms of what we find, you can draw conclusions about the subject in question. So, for instance, if you wanted to understand uh, anthroposophy, maybe maybe you look at what anthroposophists are saying online, you know, or what they do in groups, that kind of thing, and draw conclusions about the nature of it. But the problem we have there is uh, the nature of appearance, right? So, is it the case that the people who profess to care about these things um, <laughs> uh, do they actually care about it, and is it the thing that they actually want? Is that the thing that they're cultivating? And there can be this uh, odd phenomenon that was, um, you know, very astutely described by Carl Jung of uh, people who get interested in this kind of stuff. And they can be very learned and very articulate, yeah. right? But the reason that they're engaged in it is is to keep it, the reality of it, as far away from themselves as possible. Right. Yeah. That's the point of it. Therefore, like, if, if you can, if you um can convincingly give yourself as well as others the appearance that you have a handle on this domain you know on this territory right uh you can keep away the unconscious what we might call psychophobia or fear of the fundamental nature of the mind if we can put it that way right um there's other ways of putting it fear of god is another way um but yes you can keep that at bay and it allows you to uh inhabit it's like you inhabit that space but you're doing it in a way where uh, uh, there's there's no engagement with this undercurrent of threat that's existential, right? So um, that, that's one thing to consider. It's like when whenever we look at uh, any kind of practice or, or, or any kind of group that professes to care about something, um, is it the case that they're a good representation of it? That's always one thing to keep in mind. But then the the other the other thing I would say is this: um, if you're serious about being materialistic, right? And I'm going to use it in the magical sense. If you're serious about being uh, a sorcerer, a practical sorcerer, if you're serious about that and you pursue it in terms of the accumulation of power or material wealth or whatever it might be, and you can see that this is analogous. You can think of it in any domain, really, right? But if you're serious about it, eventually. Right, it's going to lead to its leads to its opposite. Right, it's eventually it's going to lead to the path of the wise, as Crowley would put it. If you're serious about power, well, okay, then I'm going to use these entities to make things happen. Okay, is there a more powerful entity than those entities? Yes, there is, and eventually you end up vertical, 
mm-hmm. at the highest power that there is. And inadvertently, just by taking it seriously, you've ended, you've ended up on the path of the wise. Right. You can. Here's a parallel example. Let's say you decide that you're going to get into day trading and you're going to be rich. Right. Well, if you're serious about that and really serious about it, let's say you end up wealthy and you end up uh, having to do whatever it takes to be successful in that domain. Eventually, you're going to discover um, that the thing that you care about is not found in the things that you've accumulated. Uh, we can have this, um, you know, this cliche about rich, successful people. That once they get in that situation, then then life's great. But I can tell you from peeking under the hood of people from all different kinds of economic class, right, that they're all playing out damn dramas of different uh, varieties. And the details of their life, uh, including their economic status, just tends to be a part, you know, prop in, in those dramas that are, bit, that are being played out. Um, so eventually, anyway, so if, you, if you're serious about being practical, you know, and leaning into it, then, then eventually it's going to it will lead to its opposite so um yeah what can we say we, so so um i mean that's just another variety of saying uh what i mentioned before which is we encounter things that are the wrong way around right and and we can travel through them and, and to discover its opposite or turn it the right way up that's that's another way another way of putting it mm-hmm. um and so uh those things, I mean, you mentioned it yourself, didn't you? You wouldn't be where you're at if you hadn't gone d- done those things yourself, found yourself making errors. Um, and Duncan, you mentioned it as well, didn't you? Mm. So, something, something along those lines, you know, where you have teachers who end up teaching all about the light and they forget about the darkness, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, th- that it's an essential part of the of the process, however you want to dice it. Um, I'll just say finally, just on on that, and then I'll hand it over. <laughs> Another way in terms of the agricultural analogy is that the darkness is like the soil that the seeds in and it's essential for cultivating, you know, what can grow there. So we don't want to stay there, but it is a a part of the truth. It's part of the tree of creation. I drove through Louisiana um, once and not New Orleans, but just different part. And it was like everything on the radio was about Christ. It was like, you know, this song is about, you know, Christ love and we're playing this for so-and-so who you need to pray for, you know, pray for little Ricky and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, uh, and then the ads were like related to Christian based businesses. And it was the feeling of like the people who are the least connected to Christianity that I'd ever felt. Cause I was like, why do you keep needing to adjust your posture into this like Christ pose? Like it's so bizarre. It just seemed completely absent, you know? And then, so that's the sort of keeping it, you know, <laughs> keeping it close uh, is actually, you know, the surest sign that you're, com- you know, really far away from it. And maybe the inverse is like the uh, the fantasy of something terrible. Um, like people are always like terrified of getting cancer are constantly fantasizing about it, you know, or mm-hmm. even if it's a sexual fantasy, like... Um, you know, people that are really like anti, anti pornography and just keep thinking about how it's damaging people as soon as they see it or whatever. There's this like kind of erotic frenzy in their imaginations around it, you know? And I do think like, um, so I, I do see that there's a way in which the proximity or the population of, uh, the images don't necessarily indicate how close or how far someone you know, is to, (laughs) is to something. And that's Mm -hmm. really, 
that's really, really important to note when we're thinking about, you know, spiritual influencers and people that are talking about spiritual paths now. Um, and it is part of why, as you both have pointed out, you know, sometimes keeping silence around these things is very useful because it can actually cut that gesture off. Um, it can stop it from happening sometimes. Uh, I think Rudolf Steiner said something like, the quickest way to lose strength is to speak. And I do think that there's uh, a truth to that. Also, it's not always true. I mean, sometimes you <laughs> speaking does bring a kind of strength of its own, but it's knowing when, you know, it's having having the right relationship to time to be able to speak in the right moment. Mm. Yeah, It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, me and Alan have a lot of uh, discussions about content, you know, the production of content on uh, the occult scene. And um, we we try to only talk when we need to talk. I mean, you were joking earlier, Alan, but we have so many occasions where we get together, we decide what the next episode of our podcast is going to be about, and then we, and then we do nothing about it. <laughs> and uh, and two months go by, and then we talk about something else completely different. And we don't, um, we try to avoid banter as well, don't we? Yeah, I... It is a concern in terms of the content. Like, why I, why are you speaking? Yeah. Why, why would you open your mouth? And uh, you know, this sometimes it's appropriate not to say anything, and then sometimes it is appropriate to speak for a reason. But mm. the, the reason we started the podcast, uh, Warp FM, is because things had to be said. Mm. There was things that we needed to talk about, things that had to be said at that time, and when that time is over, we'll stop doing it. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, this isn't, uh, you know, I'm not making any judgments or criticisms about anyone else who runs a podcast. Duncan, you do a different podcast, don't you? You have a Patreon mm. and all that stuff. And good luck mm. to anyone who wants to, you know, try and make a living producing content. Um, but in <laughs> terms of, in terms of Warp FM, what that is, what that specific thing is, I'm very careful that we don't contaminate with those kinds of concerns. Uh, something has to be said, and then when it doesn't need to be said anymore, then then it, then it will come to an end. Um, yeah. yeah, and then I mean the banter thing is just um, you know, do people want to hear me talk about my uh, washing machine or you know whatever? <laughs> you know, I just had an interesting sandwich. We'll like, see. Who wants to hear that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think as far as. Speaking, you know, one thing that I have to be very careful of, and maybe you guys can talk on this a little bit, and actually also, Duncan, I'd be interested in hearing as a therapist, like a version of this in therapy, because people learn something spiritually, or they think they've learned it, and then immediately, they're just like, well, you know, it's like they can't hold it even in their own mouths, you know, for two seconds before they spit it out. And it's like, I have to be very careful of that that I don't try to lead people along the path of what I'm currently spiritually interested in. <laughs> it's very tricky because sometimes the message is urgent and sometimes a, uh, a clarity will come to me after having internally worked on something for a long time. And so it'll appear new, but actually it's not new. It's been around for a while, just waiting for me to kind of dust off, you know, or, or sort of get it out of the muck that I placed it in. But a lot of times I'm learning and 
I'll just, you know, I have to really work on just speaking it. And I think a lot of people that are involved in anything, not just directly spiritual content or whatever, uh, really want to export the lesson really quickly. So that's part of the therapy thing. The only other thing I would say about maybe podcasting is, you know, it's why what the concerns you brought up, Alan, is why when I do a podcast, I try my best to, yes, I try to make the conversations have depth, but the real reason for doing that is so what I'm offering is two strangers sitting together in friendship because usually I don't know the person. So it's not actually even about what we say. It's like what happens when two people who don't know each other sit and the idea is that there's some trust and friend friendliness here and two very different people very often who are working in the world in different ways. Obviously it's different if I know the person or if I, you know, or, or even more if I'm good friends with the person, but the majority of the shows are not that. So it's uh, kind of offering, okay, this is a meeting. And what happens when you listen to a meeting where people don't disagree? It's not about disagreement. It's not about debate. It's not even about anything other than just taking an interest. Because I do think that has its own effect or gesture. Um, but I, but it's absolutely right that the content, like the the, the drive to extract information from each other and present it as if it offers some kind of truth is not to me what I ever want to do. And I, I do, I mean, there are over 200, you know, it's going to 250 episodes of the show. I do do it sometimes. I have to admit that, that sometimes that happens because I can't find my way to sit either because I'm riled up because I've had way too much coffee or because I'm having a bad day or because I just don't get along with the person, but mostly, you know, I'm trying to do something different, but sorry. Uh, yeah. I, before I add any more points, I'll stand back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the danger perhaps with, um, you know, the conversational podcast format because potentially it's infinite, potentially it's endless, you know, conversations can, can go on forever, you know, and it sounds like what you're trying to do there, Connor is, um, really focus on, on that particular relationship at that particular time. Um, you know, and as I think I've remarked to you before, strangely, the, the episodes of um, your podcast that I've got the most out of have always been the solo ones. You know, I love, love hearing just you talk, you know, and, um, and I do have a special fondness just, just for the solo podcast, you know, and of course I do them myself. And, um, I think one of the strengths of uh, a, a, a monologue is, you know, a monologue can't go on forever, and it really, really shouldn't, you junk. know. And <laughs> aside from Alex, <laughs> so, so you know, the solo podcasts I've done, you know, they always they're always finite. You know, they always were going to be finite from the beginning. They come to an end, um, you know. And you mentioned about uh, therapy earlier, and um, you know the the um, the idea of of you know content and ideas and how that gets treated there. I mean, you know what what you're doing when you're training to be a therapist is you, you're basically learning the skill of not saying anything, you know, unless it's going to be helpful to the other person, and also the skill of if you do say something, then you know exactly why you're saying it. <laughs> You know, and um, 
and, and you have a, a very clear intention, you know, every time your mouth is opened. Mm. It's interesting why we're having this conversation. Do you remember the um, the, the reason why you got in contact, Connor? Uh, yeah. I, I, I was just listening to you guys on Warp FM, and of course, you know, it's obviously familiar with what you've done before, but it was, I kept feeling an affinity for you guys. Now, I know that probably people who listen to podcasts feel affinities with the people who are talking, but I don't like listening to podcasts. <laughs> like I don't, I, it's, it's, you know, I do it every week now, you know, I do tons of research, I do whatever. And yeah, of course there are podcasts that I like, but I, I started to feel like, um, Hmm. They're presenting a picture and and we've touched on this in many different ways. And I'm glad actually you asked that question, Alan, um, picking up on what Duncan said, because it's really important to actually kind of clear the way a little bit here. I, I kept thinking in regards to you specifically, and then I'll talk about both of you, but in regards to you specifically, and I mean this with no condescension at all, the, the intensity with which you have transformed since I was familiar with your works before, Alan, was, I mean, it's just so plain. Now, Duncan, I had already known because he'd put out- Duncan's still the same. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I said Duncan's still the same. Uh, yeah, no, no, Duncan I'd known a bit more because he had had all this other stuff that was available to me. And he had talked to two people that I know on Weird Studies podcast. And it was a little easier to track, but it was like I had lost track of you. And then I came back to you on this podcast and I was like, this is actually a very different person. So there was this specific thing to you. And then um, <laughs> on your latest episode, uh, which came out like months ago or whatever, but on your latest episode, <laughs> there was a story that you told about um, about finding about seeing cash, like someone had dropped some cash in front of you, Duncan, and there was an option to just sort of pick it up. No one would have known, and it was had to do with a working that maybe you'd done to. For, for money or, you know, thinking about money or whatever. And the, in the middle of that podcast, I had parked the car somewhere here in Ireland and I walked into a store and someone had left a wad of cash on the counter. And while I, I, I didn't take it, but I thought, okay, well, <laughs> now I think I should say something to these guys about it. And then just a picture of picking that up. Now, interestingly, and this is why I'm saying I'm glad you kind of put a pin in it here, Alan, is that was all about the ways in which we can, that conversation you had about that wad of cash that Duncan did not pick up was all about the ways in which we can convince ourselves that a step down the wrong path is harmless, that um, it's not hurting anybody. It's not doing anything. No one's going to be the wiser, whatever. I could just take the cash. And yet there is a knowingness there, if we want to get in touch with it, that knows that that's not the thing to do. And the many ways in which we know, whether or not we're sort of 
doing a disservice to someone because they would have come back and get the cash or focusing so much on the material conditions of our lives that we think we need it, um, thinking that we've been rewarded by deepening our relationship to uh, a, s- a certain form of the economic system, um, carrying around a lie with us in our pocket the whole day, all these ways that are packed into that one moment, which is seemingly innocuous, and which I think most people would not argue with, there's nothing wrong with just picking up the cash and like taking it instead of turning it over to the shopkeeper who might, in fact, just pocket it himself. So, um, those are the reasons it came up. So I'm glad you brought it up because I think maybe that is the direction <laughs> to take this in a little bit more um, after we, you know, made all these mistakes to get here. Uh, Duncan, they were not really mistakes. We've arrived. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting because I heard from somebody else after that episode of the podcast, somebody got in touch and said, you know, really odd after I'd listened to you, I went out and, and a load of cash dropped out of the pocket of the guy in front of me. <laughs> so it really sent out ripples, that story. And what did they do? What choice did they make? They made the same choice. They left, you know, they handed it to the person who dropped it. Wow. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> do you feel, do you feel, I mean, this is, that's an interesting question just from a sort of, supernaturally spirit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that actually it, whatever was working with you is still trying to work itself out in the world. So by saying it, it's like trying to pick up other opportunities. So is this another way we need to guard what we talk about in a way, but also do you think that if you do a working like that, it's going to continue to like echo until someone completes it the way it's seeking to be completed. Mm. It's weird. My feeling, you know, thinking about that is that this this is done. You know, this is over. You know, so we've, you know, that story has been told three times now. And uh, each time the person, you know, gave the money back, you know, that's done. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Maybe we, yeah. maybe, maybe with the three of us, we finished it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, my, my take is a little bit different, which would be. <laughs> Coming back, circling around to the point of WAP FM, um, and and it's something that uh, I've come to realise about our earlier work when we did the Baptist Head, something that was present then, um, as I ref- as I've reflected on it. But um, the point of the podcast and the other work surrounding it, and this event that we're talking about, is a demonstration of the content that we talk about. Content in the sense of. Mm-hmm what we're actually talking about, not content as in something to be merely consumed passively. Um, but we we talked about that structure, you know, that there's a choice that can be made. There are these instances where you can cross that line in terms of your conscience and it can lead in a certain direction. Uh, you know, like and, and that that choice of like, well, what what's the moral choice that you make when no one's watching? Mm-hmm. Right, what what move do you make? Uh, and that's that was the in some ways that's the that's the 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 point of the of the the entire podcast which is to show that there's a structure to the world to your experience and that the choice is in your hands right um but at, but at this time uh where we find ourselves in terms of our culture um we could say that the uh 
we don't have the excuse of naivety anymore mm. or ignorance about what it is that we're doing. Um, everything's being revealed, right? This choice is still yours, however. And uh, uh, so you can make a choice, but you can't say that you didn't know the choice that you that you were making, if that makes sense. So mm. this is what happened when I started the Magical Order. Uh, this is what happened with my sole engagement on uh, social media was for this reason alone. Uh, it's what we do. It's what we're doing with the podcast, and I think this is just another example of it—a demonstration. It's just to show that oh, this is the nature of things and the structure of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are the chances that these things would happen to people off the back of listening to, you know, two idiots rambling in a badly edited, uh, <laughs> um, irregular podcast? <laughs> Uh, it's a demonstration. And so, um, I mean, that's the other thing to keep in mind, just to circle it back to an idea you mentioned before. Uh, you know, this idea of like uh, resisting evil or dealing with evil or, or something like that, you know, being persuaded in a certain direction by demons or something like that. Um, we don't need to concern ourselves with protecting ourselves from influences like that. Instead, we just need to be clear about what choice we're making and what it is that we care about and the direction that we're going in. And therefore, mm-hmm. things can get as pitch black as they like, right? But what's the what's the choice that you're making? Um, I mean, an equivalent of this, a real-world experience for this, is for the meditator who goes through what we talked about before, like the dark night. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether, thing, whether it's sunny or it's, or, it's, or it's dark. Like, what are you saying yes to and what are you following? Uh, and it's the same. It's the same with um, whether or not we are, you know, being raised up by angels, or being, uh, you know, enticed by demons, temp- tempted by demons to do immoral things. Uh, these are these are these are merely impressions trying to convince you that they're more important than other impressions, and they just happen to be the ones that you're dealing with at that present moment. Um, but what's the choice that you're making? What direction do you want to move in? Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> part of what you're naming there is, you know, I mean, we've we've had these really, I mean, long ethical uh, debates over whether or not picking up the money is okay. And I think we live in an essentially a, a time of struggling with ethics. I mean, especially if you look at, you know, the people whose political sympathies I probably most align myself with, you know, the left, it's all ethical questions about material conditions. But what what actually does need to develop is a connection with our moral sense. And that's also a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people that are involved in spiritual communities who are used to responding to a certain picture of morality, which is brought by a certain way in which Christianity has been misused. Mostly Christianity has been really misused and used to condemn people. So, then they turn merely to magical ethics, which of course is about arranging and rearranging the objects in the world. And you can't get to the heart of being with that. It's not to say that you can't use it to do anything good. Sometimes, you know, that's the only tool you have to make your, uh, or it seems like the only tool that's available to, you know, take an action with. Um, usually there's some, still some freedom there to really look, but sometimes we can't access that. Okay. I understand. So I do think that that's part of it. And I think that that's maybe part of what I was identifying before about you, Alan, 
I don't want to leave you out of this, Duncan. It's just you've, uh, again, I've just seen more of a gradual picture of you, whereas Alan, it was just like split screen, <laughs> um, <laughs> where uh, it seems like you're both, you know, expressing this kind of moral sense now. Mm. That's very important because a lot of the spiritual community is obsessed with conspiracy theories whatever i'm not even talking about the value of those or their truth or not but they are really ethically and materialistically based um or they're talking about how to stay healthy without talking about the moral properties of the dead <laughs> the moral the more sorry the properties the moral presence of the dead and the kingdom of the dead so, mm-hmm. so on and so forth i could give a hundred examples of this but it's just a, a, a deep difference. So I think that that's part of what I'm trying to articulate when I say you guys are developing something that seems non-materialistic, I think, in that in that way. I think me and Alan have, uh, you know, we take a, a different approach to the, the past. Um, I mean, I basically still do a lot of the things that I used to do. You know, so, you know, I still wear a chaos magic ring, Mm -hmm. even though I'm no longer a member of the magical order, you know, that wears chaos magic rings. Um, (laughs) I still, we have a little, little group where I live that meets up occasionally. We get together, we do chaos magic workings, you know, still do all that stuff, but, but it's different now. Um, in the, chaos magic group when we do our our you know magical workings most of the discussion is about the ethics of what we're doing you know it's almost like um that sort of practical magic for me these days is is basically an ethical discussion about you know what it's what it's right to do and and sometimes you know whether it's it's right to do anything at all hmm um, you know, another thing is I, I I still listen to loads and loads of magical podcasts. I listen to absolutely everything I can, you know, not necessarily because uh, I agree with it or disagree with it, you know, just to stay in touch with what's going on in, in that sort of culture at the moment. I know Alan takes a very different attitude towards that <laughs> and always complains when uh, when I suggest that he might, there's stuff that he might want to listen to. <laughs> yeah, people send me stuff and force me to listen. To, uh, <laughs> if I can stomach it, <laughs> uh, I—I I mean, what can I say about that? I mean, I do. I mean, I did last year. I started a magical order, mm. right? And and in the holy of holies, at the centre of the order, right, there is a secret ancient magical technique, the most powerful practical magical technique that's ever existed, and it's not sex magic, and it's got nothing to do with drugs, right? <laughs> and it follows the traditional uh structure you know like the abramelian ritual or solomonic magic all of which are greek uh where where there's a certain process that you go through and then you then you end up in a certain position um it's, I, I guess it's just a maybe perhaps it's just a variation of of what it is that you do dunk i don't know mm. my, but my path has been um you know very particular so uh I mentioned before about the Baptist head stuff. When I when I look back at that, me and you doing these practices, g- going through these stages, looking at different traditions, trying to make sense of what it is that was unfolding. 
Uh, that to me is merely a dem demonstration of the orientation that we've been talking about on this podcast. I couldn't articulate it as well then. Uh, and I didn't realize that that is what it is that we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, hopefully there is a maturity in terms of my ability to express that. Um, but in the interim between the end of the Baptist head in was it 2009, when the last book came out in the trilogy, mm -hmm. and um, say Magia coming along in 2019, in that interim, um, all I did as a day to, as a day to day job, 24, 24 hours a day, you know, um, not twenty four hours a day. Can edit that bit out. Uh, <laughs> what I did as a job, right, every day, right, was simply guide people through the process of waking up. So, uh, someone asked me, could I could I help them go through the experiences and the events that we described in the Baptist head? Uh, it was a Zen guy. He'd been a Zen priest, uh, Westerner. He'd, he'd been in Japan in a monastery for twelve years, but he'd never experienced Kensho, right? Awakening or realization. He asked me, "Could I? Can I help him go through the same process?" So that's how it started. So I, so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll see if I can do that. Uh, and then word of mouth spread that way. Um, in the middle of that period of that decade, uh, I decided I didn't want any students. Uh, which is when I had my the biggest number of students when I tried to disappear, um, and it was this, and the reason I felt like that is because I didn't know I had this sense that what I was saying wasn't it yet, it wasn't quite right. It's like what is what is this process? Um, but through working with hundreds of people, I got to see this process unfold, and, you know, in all the different ways that it can. I got to see the ways in which it it always has the same features in, in a certain sense. I got to appreciate the particulars, those things that are unique. Uh, and for that 10-year period, if it's 10, 10 or 12 years or something like that, thinking about it in explicitly magical terms like we did with the Baptist head, that dropped away. And I just wanted to know what it is. What is this and what it, what is happening? And you can survey the uh, spiritual literature, non-duality, um, whatever the tradition might be, Western stuff, Eastern stuff. And, you know, I was asking that question, Does is is this, is that the best way of describing it? Is this what I'm looking at? Are these the same thing? Are they different? Mm. Uh, and it was just perpetual questioning. And, um, I mean, the, the extraordinary thing is that I ended up, you know, back where I started. <laughs> uh, it's, there, you know, there are things about Magia, which is, which is what I call, my expression of the lineage uh, goes back to my childhood, including name in ways that are that are profound and actually intimately connected with Christ. You mentioned Christ earlier. Um, you know, it hasn't escaped my attention that Magir is an old word for magic, and there was someone else in the past who expressed the tradition using an old word for magic. <laughs> uh, so, in a, so in a roundabout way, I've I've come back to it, but. Um, it's it's an expression of that tradition from something that's living, right? That um, that, that doesn't come from my efforts, if I can put it that way. So, um, again, I, I there are similarities, though, aren't there, in terms of in terms of how um, there is a a fundamental transformation in your outlook if what you've done is aimed at the highest for an extended period of time. And it changes how you might ask questions around what it is that's worth doing that's practical, magically speaking, in a specific sense, but also analogically in any practical sense, you know, in terms of your life. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, <clears throat> I so appreciate what you've both said. And I thank you, Duncan, for starting off by saying, well, I still do some of that stuff, you know, and then for you, Alan, to say, I've, I've come back to it. You know, <clears throat> I think I'm very, first, I want to say, obviously, I resonated with Baptist Head way back when, and then I resonate with what you guys are doing now as well. Um, however, it's changed. I know I've changed and I'm resonating differently with this now. Um, you know, the, the voyage of St. Brendan, the navigator from Ireland to the, uh, to North America is he <laughs> goes up to one Island. Then he, you know, parks the boat on the back of a whale. Then he goes to another Island, but then he has to go back to the first Island, then the whale again, then all the way back home. Then, you know, until finally he gets to North America and then he comes back. It's not direct. It's not, uh, in fact, he has to go back many times um, before he gets there. But each time, you know, a new contour of wisdom is granted to him. But always the one thing that leads in there, and this is very interesting with the way the Magia starts and what you started with this conversation, Alan, is there, there's faith, you know, there's always this, I, I, will, I will stand while the other people around me are screaming, <laughs> you're not going forward, you know, uh, the devil's coming to take different people on the boat. Uh, I'm afraid of this island, people are shooting fire at us or whatever. He's led by this, you know, intensity and faith and proximity to Christ. But each time, you know, he goes back, he gets something. And that picture has been very strong for me. Uh, this idea of overlapping, you know, lines on one voyage. And I, I think I'm, I, I get, <laughs> it's funny because I've done a lot of episodes like kind of against magic now, um, which is, but it's not true that I'm against magic. For instance, you know, Franz Barden, I think has a lot to offer <laughs> the world that people want to sit with what he's done. It's a, but it's a very different kind of magic in a lot of ways. Or, uh, I mean, there are just other people that would refer to themselves as doing, you know, white magic or whatever. It's just finding the appropriate way. But I, I do think, you know, like I won't talk about the specifics of it too much, but the, but years ago, I did the whole orbital with somebody. And that is an extremely, <laughs> like powerful book. It was just that so many things had led me to do it, that it was kind of incontrovertible that I was meant to go on that journey. But when I looked at other people that had done it, they kept talking about how it ruined their lives, how it really fucked them up. But in the beginning of that book, (laughs) the people who have written it or received it or whatever, they keep saying, you must do this with love of God in mind. You have to keep the love of God in your mind as you do this. And it was clear that the other people hadn't. So it's very clear just from that example, it didn't ruin my life. I mean, it did create a period of quite of intensity, but it, you know, it brought a lot in. But I I knew that like meeting that with a certain relationship to God, to the spiritual realm, the spiritual landscape that I'm in, and all that would would produce a different connection with the things that were happening there. And so that's, you know, part of what I hear when I hear you guys talking about what you're doing now. I mean, you just it there something's happened inwardly. And I'm not the one to make the pronouncement of how that happened or why or 
that you're so much better people now or anything. I don't mean any of that. I just mean it is clear. I mean, it's just clear from the outside, at least to me. And maybe I'm just reflecting on myself, but I don't think so. I think it's clear that something's happened. Um, and part of it, I think, and this kind of loops it all together, but you know, there's this story of, you know, when Christ is crucified and he goes through the layers of the earth. And each layer he's um you know, consecrating or saving, essentially, as he goes through each layer of the earth. But when he gets to the center, and this is a really interesting thing, because whenever I tell this story, everybody wants to know the names of all the beings. They want to know all about the evil that I'm talking about. So, I am always like, as you, listeners, as you listen to me say this, notice if there's any prurient interest in you trying to seek out the evil in this story instead of the good thing that <laughs> I'm going to tell you about. When he gets to the center of the earth, there's a being in the evil golden core of the earth. <laughs> See, so now, now I'm sensationalizing it because it's hard to even talk about it without talking about it in this way. He can't overcome the being in a contest of power. And so what he does is he, he just gives up all his power and then he walks away. And that's how he overcomes it. So at the center of all this is, you know, Again, this question of I'll go into truth. It it in in fact leaves all the evil in place in a way. But when you have when when I we have walked away from power in that way, when we've turned away from the struggle for power, uh, it brings a new life to all the things that we might have done before for power, with power, and to engage and use power. And that's just a very different way of being. And that's part of what I hear in what both of you guys are saying. I might be wrong, but th that's what I hear. Maybe I'm just hoping that that's what you're saying. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know. What's left at the end of the day? You know, what is it that I do these days that I call my magical practice and it's just you know coming down here to the shed every morning and and sitting for an hour and just trying to connect with you know what what the highest thing is that's it that's all that's left and um you know i still i still struggle with lots of things i think one of the things i struggle with is i still feel as if um, you know, it's impossible. You know, still, still struggle with that basic faith. I think. You know, and and that, that's pretty much what's what's left these days. That's what I'm calling magic. And I'm aware, you know, a lot of people wouldn't perhaps, but but that's what it's come down to for me. I think if there's anything magical that I'm doing or i view as magic it it kind of is like that in a way in its own way which is i know that the world is changing in some ways it's not changing but on this level of my experience it is changing there's a lot that's changing right now the world itself is seeking connection with its own destiny it, it wants to move and to the extent that I'm in my destiny to the extent that I've worked with 
um, being clear and open to that. There's a there's a there's a prayer which I'll read and you can close your ears if you don't want to hear it. But uh, um, but to the extent in which I work with that, then the world because I am part of the world gets to meet at least one outlet in which it can come through a little more clearly that it can meet its own destiny clearly. And so I think if there's anything magical I'm doing to affect change in the world, it's not, I just change myself and the world changes. It's actually, I change myself with the world so it can work through me, have a kind of clear place to radiate from um, so that it can meet its destiny a bit more easily. Um, to that effect, there's a, a Bogomil prayer, <laughs> which is a, uh, Cleanse me, my God. Purify me inwardly and outwardly. Purify body, soul, and spirit, so that the seeds of light may grow within me. And make me into a flaming torch. I should like to be my own flame, so as to transform everything in and around me into light. So for me, I would say if there's any magic to be done in my life, that would be it, um, which is a different project than the magic I was doing <laughs> 15 years ago, for sure. <laughs> for my magical practice, the best I can do is uh, I light a candle every day. You know, And uh, the thing about doing that, as humble as it is, as an expression of faith, um, the light from a candle, which is every corner of the room, doesn't it? Well, I love ending on this spot. I mean, it's good to hear your expressions of it um, and where it is in your life now. Oh, it's really good, actually. Um, so I'm so glad to have uh, met you guys here together. So thank you so much, uh, Duncan Barford and Alan Chapman. Thanks for hosting us, Connor. Cheers, Connor. Take care. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye now. Thank you.